This is the American Variety Network on Block Talk Radio with Alex Cardinale. Live from Springfield, Massachusetts. Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays 2015 from all of us at the American Variety Network. Eighty-one forty-two. 
Ladies and gentlemen, coming up next, right here on the American Variety Network, live on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and YouTube, is American Tragedy Hour, Unusual Tragedies. Don't go anywhere, because the American Variety Network is going to make its entrance felt with our great intro. Yeah. 
Tune in live to the American Variety Network here, live on Block Talk Radio. With a name like American Variety, you can expect a wide variety of topics. Now, let's get live here on the AV Network. Hi, Jeremy Stillhorn. I'm tuned into the American Variety Network where I find the show is very educational and entertaining. Are you bold enough to call in and interact with tonight's topic? Well, prove it by calling in live at one 347 to ask questions about tonight's topic or share your thoughts on tonight's topic. Just pick up your phone and dial one 347 and go into a quiet location. Again, that's one 347 Now let's get on with the show. Are you ready for a talk show that is brave enough to talk about anything and everything, even if it's controversial? Are you ready for a talk show where anything goes and we will say anything that we want? Well, then you're listening to the right talk show. You are tuned in to In Your Face Talk Show. With your host, the crazy Italian-American AC. You can expect to hear the unexpected. Laugh at what is said, or you may scream. Either case, sit back and enjoy the show. Let's get in your face with this great talk show. Alright, so, let's go ahead and start talking about some unusual tragedies. Now, I want to start by talking about Boston. You know, the capital of my state, Boston, Massachusetts, has suffered its fair share of unusual tragedies. Let's go ahead and start this show by discussing some of the tragedies that have struck Boston. We're going to start with the Boston Molasses Disaster. Now, this is also known as the Great Molasses Flood, 
and it occurred on January 15th, 1919, in the North End neighborhood of Boston, Mass. A large molasses storage tank burst, and a wave of molasses rushed through the streets at an estimated 35 miles per hour, killing 21 people and injuring another 150 people. Now, the event has entered local folklore, and for decades afterward, residents claimed that on hot summer days, the area still smelled of molasses. Now, the disaster occurred at the Purity Distilling Company faculty on January 15, 1919. The temperature had risen above 40 degrees Fahrenheit, climbing rapidly from the frigid temperatures of the preceding days. At about 12.30 in the afternoon, near Keeney Square, at 529 Commercial Street, a molasses tank that was 50 feet tall, 90 feet in diameter, and containing as much as 2,300,000 U.S. gallons collapsed. Witnesses reported variously, though as it collapsed, they felt the ground shake and heard a roar, a long rumble similar to the passing of an elevated train, a tremendous crashing, a deep growling, or a thunderclap-like bang. And as the rivets shot out of the tank, a machine gun-like rat-tat-tat sound. The collapse unleashed a wave of molasses 25 feet high at its peak, moving at 35 miles per hour. The molasses wave was of sufficient force to damage the girders of the adjacent Boston Elevated Railway's Atlantic Avenue structure and tip a railroad car momentarily off the tracks. Author Stephen Puglio describes how nearby buildings were swept off their foundations and crushed. Several blocks were flooded to a depth of two to three feet. Puglio quotes a Boston Post report, quote-unquote, molasses, waist-deep, covered the street and swirled and bubbled about the wreckage. Here and there struggled to form. Whether it was animal or human being was impossible to tell. Only an upheaval, a trashing about in the sticky mass, showed where any life was. Horses died like so many flies on sticky flypaper. The more they struggled, the deeper in the mess they were ensnared. Human beings, men and women, suffered likewise. Wow, that's a terrible, terrible incident. Now, the Boston Globe reported that people were picked up by a rush of air and hurled many feet. Others had debris hurled at them from the rush of sweet-smelling air. A truck was picked up and hurled into Boston Harbor. 
approximately 150 people were injured. 21 people and several horses were killed. Some were crushed and drowned by the molasses. The wounded included people, horses, and dogs. Coughing fits became one of the most common ailments after the initial blast. In a 1983 article for Smithsonian, Edward Park wrote of one child's experience. Anthony D. Stacio, walking homeward with his sisters from the Michelangelo school, was picked up by the wave and carried, tumbling on its crest almost as though he was surfing. Then he grounded, and the molasses rolled him like a pebble as the wave diminished. He heard his mother call his name and couldn't answer. His throat was so clogged with the smothering goo. He passed out, then opened his eyes to find three of his four sisters staring at him. Cleanup crews used salt water from a fireboat to wash the molasses away, and used sand to try to absorb it. The harbor was brown with molasses until summertime. Now, the cleanup in the immediate area took weeks, with more than 300 people contributing to the effort. The cleanup in the rest of greater Boston and its suburbs would take an indefinitely longer time. Rescue workers cleanup crews, and sightseers had tracked molasses through the streets and spread it to subway platforms, the seats inside trains and streetcars, to pay telephone, uh, telephone headsets into homes and countless other places. Everything a Bostonian touched was sticky. Wow. This definitely is one of those unusual tragedies that you don't think can happen, but when it does happen, it's very shocking. Luckily for us here in Boston, Massachusetts, we haven't had a tragedy like this in quite a long time. I don't remember the last time we had a tragedy like this. So... Moving on down to the next Boston unusual tragedy, and that is the Great Boston Fire of 1872. The Great Boston Fire of 1872 was Boston's largest urban fire and still ranks as one of the most costly fire-related property losses in American history. The fire began at 7.20 p.m. on November 9, 1872, in the basement of a commercial warehouse at 87, excuse me, at 8387 Summers Street. The fire was finally contained 12 hours later after it had consumed about 65 acres of Boston's downtown, 776 buildings, and much of the financial district and caused $73.5 million in damage. Wow! Holy cow! What a fire! Can you imagine over 700 buildings being damaged by one fire? 
Wow. At least 30 people are known to have died in the fire. Now, there are many factors that contributed to Boston's Great Fire. At the time, Boston's building regulations were not enforced. There was no authority to stop faulty construction practices. Buildings were often insured at full value or above value. Over-insurance meant owners had no incentive to build fire-safe buildings. Insurance-related arson was very common during this time. Flammable wooden French mansard roofs were common on most buildings. The fire was able to spread quickly from roof to roof across the narrow streets onto other buildings. Flying embers and cinders started fires on even more roofs. Fire alarm boxes in Boston were locked to prevent false fire alarms, therefore delaying the Boston Fire Department by 20 minutes. Merchants were not taxed for inventory in their attics, therefore offering incentive to stuff their wood attics with flammable goods such as wool, textiles, and paper stocks. Most of the downtown area had old water pipes with low water pressure. Fire hydrant couplings were not standardized. The number of fire hydrants and cisterns was insufficient for a commercial district. A horse flu had immobilized Boston Fire Department horses. As a result, all of the fire equipment had to be pulled to the fire by teams of volunteers on foot. This is often cited as the leading cause of this fire growing out of control. But the city commission investigating the fire found that fire crews' response times were only delayed by just a matter of minutes. Looters and bystanders interfered with firefighting efforts. Steam engine pumpers were not able to draw enough water to reach the wooden roofs of tall downtown buildings. Gas supply lines connected to street lamps and used for lighting in buildings could not be shut off properly. Gas lines exploded and fed the flames. Fire departments from every state in New England, except Vermont, arrived on trains carrying pumpers, firefighters, and more spectators. The fire rendered thousands of Bostonians jobless and homeless. Hundreds of business were destroyed, and dozens of insurance companies went bankrupt. However, the Burt District was quickly rebuilt in just under two years, mostly from the private capital of Boston's commercial property owners. City planning during the post-fire reconstruction caused several streets in downtown Boston to be widened, particularly Congress Street, Federal Street, 
Purchase Street and Howley Street and reserved the space for post office where most of the rubble and ruins of the buildings destroyed by the fire was dumped in the harbor to fill in Atlantic Avenue. Wow, this is a deadly fire. My thoughts on this case was this is a fire you just don't see uh, nowadays. I don't recall a fire in my lifetime at least that destroyed over 700 buildings. A really bizarre fire and an unusual fire to say the least. I'm not sure why we did not learn about the Great Boston Fire in school. Don't you think that this would be a subject of discussion in American history? Because it happened a long time ago, and it had a great impact to the American economy in Boston. I hope that sometime uh, this fire will be talked about in American history class. All right, the last Boston unusual tragedy we're going to talk about is one that happened two years ago. And this one is not usually forgotten about, but some people are looking to move on from it. And that is the Boston Marathon bombing. Now, the Boston Marathon bombing was a terrorist attack followed by subsequent related shootings that occurred when two pressure cooker bombs exploded during the Boston Marathon on April 15, 2013. The bombs exploded about 12 seconds and 210 yards apart at 2.49 p.m. Eastern Standard Time near the Marathon's finish line on Boston Street. They killed three people and injured an estimated 264 others. On Patriot's Day, April 15, 2013, the 117th annual Boston Marathon began without any signs of an imminent attack. Officials swept the area for bombs twice before the explosions, the second hour before the bombs went off. People were able to come and go freely and carry bags and items in and out of the area. At 2.49 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, about two hours after the winner crossed the finish line, but with more than 5,700 runners at the finish, two bombs detonated on Boylston Street near Copley Square, about 210 yards just before the finish line. The first exploded outside Marathon Sports, at 671-673 Boylston Street at 2.49-43 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. At the time of the first explosion, the race clock at the finish line showed 04-09-43, reflecting the elapsed time since the Wave 3 start at 10.40 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. The second bomb exploded at 2.49.57 p.m., about 13 seconds later, and one block farther west at 7.55 Boylston Street. The blast blew out windows on adjacent buildings, but did not cause any structural damage. Some runners continued to cross the line 
until 2.57 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, eight minutes after the explosions. Rescue workers and medical personnel on hand to assist runners and bystanders rushed available aid to wounded victims in the bombing's immediate aftermath. Additional units from Boston EMS, the Boston Police Department, and the Boston Fire Department were dispatched to assist emergency responders already on scene. A mutual aid request was sent and additional private ambulance responded. The explosions killed three speculators and injured an estimated 264 others who were treated in 27 local hospitals. At least 14 people required amputations, with some suffering traumatic amputations as a a direct result of the blast. The marathon was halted abruptly. Boston police, following emergency plans, diverted diverted the remaining runners away from the finish line to Boston Common and Kenmore Square. The nearby Lennox Hotel and other buildings were evacuated. Police closed down a 15-block area around the blast site. This was reduced to a 12-block crime scene on April 16th. Massachusetts Army National Guard soldiers already at the scene joined local authorities in rendering aid. Boston Police Commissioner Ed Davis recommended that people stay off the streets. So my thoughts on this case exactly are that it was a terrible tragedy attack, and I never thought that a tragedy attack could happen in the city of Boston, but unfortunately it did happen in the city of Boston, and there was nothing we can do about it. Sad that so many people were injured and killed in this awful tragedy. Really, really sad. I wish that uh, it could not have happened like that. All right, so that is all the Boston unusual tragedies. Let's move on to some of the other unusual tragedies all over the United States of America, shall we? All right, so first I want to talk about a tragedy that I know a lot of you probably don't know of or remember. And that is the Skyline Towers collapse. On March 2nd, 1973, the Skyland Plaza apartment building in Bailey's Crossroads, Virginia, collapsed while under construction. The collapse extended vertically through the building from the 24th floor to the ground, leaving an appearance of the structure as two different high-rise buildings with a gap between them. The collapse tore a 60-foot-wide gap through the building all the way to the ground. At the time of the collapse, two practically identical reinforced concrete towers had already been built. Shortly after lunch, some workers observed slab deflections of about six inches to two feet for both the 23rd floor slab and the freshly placed 24th floor slab. 
the freshly placed section of the 24th floor slab then fell onto the 23rd floor slab, starting a collapse that continued all the way to the foundation. The collapse killed 14 workers and injured 34 people. Wow, that is a crazy, crazy tragedy, my folks. Can you imagine a building collapsing when you were inside? And it's also a building that was under recent construction. Scary to think about it like that. All right. The next unusual tragedy that we're going to talk about is the American Eagle Flight 4184 crash. American Eagle Flight 4184 was an ATR-72 that crashed after flying into unknown icing conditions on Monday, October 31st, 1994. Well, it's happened on Halloween night. Control was lost and all aboard were killed. The flight was en route from Indianapolis International Airport, Indiana, to O'Hare International Airport, Chicago, Illinois. Bad weather in Chicago caused delays, prompting air traffic control to hold Flight 4184 over the nearby LUCIT intersection at 10,000 feet. While holding, the plane encountered freezing rain, a dangerous icing condition which supercooled droplets rapidly caused intense ice buildup. Soon after, they were cleared to descend to 8,000 feet. After this descent, the pilots were ordered to enter another hold. During this descent, a warning sound indicating an overspeed warning due to the extended flaps was heard in the cockpit. After the pilot took action by retracting the flaps, a strange noise was heard on the cockpit voice recorder followed by an uncommanded roll execution which disengaged the autopilot. Flight recorder data showed that the aircraft subsequently went through at least one full row after which Agar and Gagnolani regained control of the rapidly descending aircraft. However, another roll occurred shortly thereafter. Fewer than 30 seconds later, at 3.59 p.m., contact was lost as the plane crashed into a soybean field near Roseland, Indiana, killing all 64 passengers and four crew on board. The disintegration of the plane indicated extreme velocity, and data recovered from the flight data recorder showed that the plane had 375 knots and indicated airspeed at impact. There was no explosion or post-impact fire as the high speed of the impact caused the fuel to disperse before it could ignite. The bodies of all on board were fragmented by the impact forces. 
Therefore, the crash site was declared a biohazard. Flight 4184 was the first loss of an ATR-72 aircraft and remains the highest death toll of any aviation accident involving an ATR-72 anywhere in the world. Robert A. Clifford, a Chicago airplane accident attorney, represented 16 of the victims. As the trial was ready to begin, the defendants agreed to a record $110 million settlement and an apology from both the manufacturer and the airline in open court. Wow, what a devastating tragedy. Kind of, I'm kind of afraid to go on an airplane now after hearing about this. And of course, 9-11. Really scary if you think about it. Alright, now let's talk about another unusual tragedy, and that is the Connorsville train wreck. Now, the Connorsville train wreck was a rail accident that occurred on December 23rd, 1903, on the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad near Connorsville, Pennsylvania. The Duquent Limited, a passenger train, derailed when it struck a load of timber lying on the tracks. The timber had fallen from a freight train minutes before the collision. The crash resulted in 64 deaths and 68 injuries. The Limited was traveling from Pittsburgh to New York at a speed of 60 miles per hour with 150 passengers on board, many traveling to catch a passenger liner to Great Britain. The train compromised Atlantic Locomotive number 1465, healing six cars or hauling six cars, a combination bagger, smoker, two passenger coaches, two Pullmans, and a dining car. Less than 15 minutes earlier, a load of timber had dropped bound freight train of the Nickel Plate Road heading for Newcastle. The timber had been loaded three days earlier in Friendship, Maryland, and it is thought the stakes on the side of the freight wagon gave way as it rounded a curve, sending the timber spilling out into the Eastbourne track without knowledge of the train crew. The engineer of the DeQuincy Limited barely had time to apply the brakes when at about 7.45 p.m. the Atlantic struck 60-foot timbers and fell onto its side between the tracks, which were torn apart a distance of 500 feet. The tender was thrown high into the air over the top of the engine. The crowded smoking car ripped along the side of the engine, the broken steam dome catching it at window height. Escaping steam shot through the interior of the car, scolding everyone in it to death. And according to the local paper, they were literally cooked alive. Steam blistered the tongues and lips of the victims to an awful size, and they protruded in a sickening manner. Death came quickly, but its agony eventually was intense. 
Another car was thrown over an, emb- an embankment into the nearby river. On the other side of the river, an operator in a tower, also called the signal, signal box, on the Pittsburgh and Lake Erie Railroad, witnessed the disaster. Baggage master Thomas Bain managed to avert a worse disaster despite being seriously injured. He set fire to his coat using matches to flag down the next westbound passenger train, which managed to stop just short of the wreck. A relief train was organized, which arrived on the scene at 9 p.m. amid reports that many of the bodies had been robbed. Wow, that's really sad. Really sad train tragedy. Usual, uh, unusual as I like to call it. All right, so right now, right here on American Tragedy Hour on the American Variety Network, I would like to take a moment of silence for all the victims who passed away in the unusual tragedies that we discussed so far. So please join me in a moment of silence for all the victims who passed away. All right, guys, so a great way to start our show with a lot of wonderful information. All right, so I think it's time for our intermission, which is being sponsored by Care of C and Ryan Serene. Check out Ryan Serene's wonderful rap songs at www.ryanserene.com. During this intermission, we're going to hear some wonderful Christmas music, and we'll be right back to talk about some more unusual tragedies, like the Gold Age Nursing Home Fire, and many more. So stick around, we got plenty more coming up next here, live on American Tragedy Hour on American Variety Network. Don't go anywhere, folks. Coming up next, next. Coming up next, live here on American Tragedy Hour on American Variety Network. A discussion on some more unusual American tragedies such as the Golden Age Nursing Home Fire, the I-40 Bridge Disaster and more. Intermission is being brought to you by rapper Ryan Serini. Check out his website at www.ryanserini.com and listen to his wonderful rap songs on iTunes. Let's keep it serene right here on American Variety Network.
tonight's episode of the American Variety Network. Great! The American Variety Network really appreciates your listening. We also appreciate listener feedback. Please feel free to email us your thoughts and opinions on tonight's show. Our email address is AmericanVarietyNetwork at Comcast.net That's AmericanVarietyNetwork.com at comcast.net You may also email us with any questions, comments, or concerns you may have about our show. You can also email us to book a guest appearance on the American Variety Network or you may contact us to become a sponsor of the American Variety Network. American Variety Network at comcast.net Would you like to find out when the next episode of the American Variety Network is? Do you want to find out the news and updates for the American Variety Network? Well, all you have to do is go on your computer and log on to the social media sites. The American Variety Network is now on Facebook and Twitter. That's right, you can find the American Variety Network on Facebook and Twitter. Like our fan page on Facebook called American Variety Network. And follow us on Twitter. Our Twitter fan page is at American Network 1. Again, our fan page on Facebook is American Variety Network. Hit like. And our fan page on Twitter is at American Network 1. And hit follow. Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays from Alex Cardinali and all of us at the American Variety Network. Make sure you buy your loved ones so awesome gifts. Enjoy the 2015 Christmas and holiday season. American Variety Network is your one stop for awesome Christmas shows during the holiday season. Expect a Christmas movie show, a Christmas giveaway, a Christmas music throwdown, and even Christmas cooking and baking shows. Nobody does Christmas like the American Variety Network. 
Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays listeners. Massachusetts listeners and fans of the American Variety Network mark your calendars Monday, December 14, 2015 at 1 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Central, 11 a.m. Mountain, and 10 a.m. Pacific. The American Variety Network will be broadcasting live from the Eastfield Mall. But this ain't no ordinary live-on-location broadcast. This is a Christmas Toys for Tots live-on-location broadcast. Folks from Western Mass can come donate a brand new toy or cash to Toys for Tots and get a free cookie in return. There will be two Marines present to accept your new toys. This will be broadcast live on the air for everyone not in Western Mass starting at 1 p.m. Eastern and ending at 3 p.m. Eastern. I will interview the Marines and chat about toys and such. I will be live in the Eastfield Mall Food Court broadcasting live and accepting donations for toys with the Marines starting at 1 p.m. ET. The Eastfield Mall is located at 1655 Boston Road, Springfield, Massachusetts 01129 for all those not in Western Mass. You can listen to the live on location broadcast at www.blogtalkradio.com forward slash American Network at 1 p.m. Eastern. Merry Christmas and let's make history. How would you like to win a $10 gift card to Burger King? How about a $10 gift card to Walmart? How would winning some delicious white chocolate covered Oreos sound? For all of the salt water reefers out there, would you like to win Caribsea's new product called Coral Up? Well, I got news for you. Live on Tuesday, December 15, 2015 at 9 p.m. Eastern, 8 p.m. Central, 7 p.m. Mountain, and 6 p.m. Pacific. Alex Cardinale brings to you the very first annual Christmas 2015 giveaway. One lucky caller will win the $10 gift card to Burger King, one lucky caller will win a gift card to Walmart. Two lucky callers will win white chocolate covered Oreos, and one lucky salt water reefer will win Carib Sea Coral Up. Five prizes and the chance for five winners. How do you win a prize? Well, you have to call in live on the 2015 Christmas giveaway and discuss what prize you want and why and then state your favorite Christmas cookie. And bang, you will win your prize. First five callers win so don't delay. Tune in live right on Tuesday, December 15, 2015 at 9 p.m. Eastern at www.blogtalkradio.com forward slash American Network. Merry Christmas and Alex Cardinali sponsors this message. He loves you, the listeners. You're listening to the, You're listening to the American Variety Network. Your only place for variety on Blog Talk Radio.
Are you ready for a talk show that is brave enough to talk about anything and everything, even if it's controversial? Are you ready for a talk show where anything goes and we will say anything that we want? Well, then you're listening to The Right Talk Show. You are tuned in to In Your Face Talk Show. With your host, the crazy Italian-American AC. You can expect to hear the unexpected. Laugh at what is said, or you may scream. And you can sit back and enjoy the show. Let's get in your face with this great talk show. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to American Tragedy Hour, live right here on the American Variety Network. Tonight, I'm talking about the unusual tragedies that have hit America. Now, before commercial break, we talked about the Boston Molasses Disaster. We talked about the Great Boston Fire of 1874. We talked about the... uh, the building collapse, and some other awesome, unusual tragedies. Now, we're getting ready to talk about some more. But first, I'd like to remind you that if you're listening live and you have any questions or comments about these unusual tragedies, please go ahead and call in at one three four seven nine eight nine eight one four two. So, let's get back in to discuss some more of these unusual tragedies. The next few ones that I'm going to talk about are really sad. So, it's going to be sad for me as a host to tell you guys about these tragedies. So, here we go. We're going to start with the Golden Age Nursing Home Fire. Now, this is a tragedy that happens right after President John F. Kennedy's assassination. Yes, the exact day. It could happen the exact day of his assassination or maybe the day after. But anyways, the Golden Age nursing home fire took place soon after 4.45 a.m. on November 23, 1963, a mile north of Fitchville, Ohio, killing 63 residents. The the blaze began so quickly that an attempt to call the local fire department proved fruitless when the faculty's telephone wires were burned. A call from a truck driver, Henry Dumman, who was passing through the rural area between Cleveland and Toledo, quickly brought local officials, but strong winds helped to envelop the one-story building in flames. Two other truck drivers also helped bring out residents from the faculty. The building's owner, Robert Pollock, indicated that many of the residents could have been saved had they not panicked. Instead of going out the doors, they went back to their beds, said Pollock. However, the faculty had an undivided attic and no automatic sprinkler system. It had three portable fire extinguishers, but no locally manual fire alarm. The three employees who were present 
and 21 residents survived. The remains of 21 residents not claimed by family members were buried in a single gravesite on November 29th. The L-shaped concrete block one-story building had passed inspection the previous March. The faculty also had a two-room addition that was made of wood, aluminum siding, and plywood paneling. Twenty-two residents lived in this addition. In late 1962, patients who were not considered mentally ill had been transferred there after being removed from the Cleveland State Hospital. The fire was the United States' deadliest blaze since December 1958 fire at Chicago's Our Lady of the Angels School that killed 95 people, which we'll talk about later. It also marked the second fire in less than a week involving the elderly, following the November 18th disaster that claimed 25 people at the Surfside Hotel in Atlantic City. What an awful tragedy, and it's a shame that so many people had to lose their lives. So many elderly people had to lose their lives in this fire. So the lesson of this story is all buildings should have a sprinkler system and a fire alarm. There's no ifs, ands, or buts around this matter. Well, speaking of the unusual, you would never think of this happening, but it did. That is a bridge collapsing, the I-40 bridge disaster. Now, the I-40 bridge disaster was a bridge collapse that occurred southeast of Weber's Falls, Oklahoma, at 7.45 a.m. on May 26, 2002. Joe Dedman, captain of the towboat Robert Y. Love, experienced a blackout and lost control of the tow. This, in turn, caused the barges he was controlling to collide with a bridge pier. The result was a 580-foot section of the Interstate 40 bridge plunging into Robert S. Keir Reservoir on the Arkansas River. Fourteen people died, and 11 others were injured when several automobiles and tractor trailers fell from the bridge. An estimated 20,000 vehicles per day were reroaded for about two months while crews rebuilt the bridge. Traffic resumed Monday, July 29, 2002, only two months after the disaster. The reopening set a new national record for such a project, which would normally be expected to take six months. Wow, can you imagine riding or driving on a bridge and having it collapse and you have to fall into a river? Very, very, very scary, if you must ask me my opinion on that. All right, now we're going to talk about Our Lady of the Angels School Fire. A fire broke out Our Lady of the Angels School shortly before classes 
were to be dismissed on Monday, December 1st, 1958, in the basement near the foot of a stairway in the Our Lady of the Angel School in Chicago, Illinois. The elementary school was operated by the Roman Catholic Archdiocese of Chicago and had an enrollment of approximately 1,600 students. A total of 92 pupils and three nuns ultimately died when smoke, heat, fire, and toxic gases cut off their normal means of escape through corridors and stairways. Many more were injured when they jumped from second floor windows, which, because the building had an English basement, were nearly as high as a third floor would be on level ground. The disaster was the lead headline story in American, Canadian, Canadian, and European newspapers. The fire began in the basement of the older North Wing between about 2 p.m. and 2.20 p.m. Central Standard Time. Classes were due to be dismissed at 3 p.m. It took place in a cardboard trash barrel located a few feet from the northeast stairwell. The fire smoldered undetected for approximately 20 minutes, gradually heating the stairwell and filling it with a light gray smoke that later would become thick and black as other types of combustibles became involved. At the same time, it began sending superheated air and gases into an open pipe chase very near the source of the fire. The pipe chase made an uninterrupted conduit up to the cocklift above the second floor classrooms. The fire began in the basement of the older north wing between about 2 p.m. Oh, I just, re- <laughs> I just read the same thing to you guys tonight. Sorry about that. Making a lot of mistakes tonight on this show. Hopefully you guys can forgive me for that. But anyways, let's continue now. Because um, I'm actually reading my notes about this tragedy. So just so you know, I do have notes on the tragedies that I talk about. So I come prepared. Because I didn't know about this tragedy. Anyways, the smoke began to fill the second floor courtier. But, but remained unnoticed for a few minutes. At approximately 2.25 p.m., three eighth-grade girls, Janet Deliria, Frances Guzzadol, and Karen Hubbock, were turning from an errand, came up a different staircase to return to their second-floor classroom in the North Wing. Of those three girls, only Janet Deliria survived the fire. The girls encountered thick, grayish smoke, making them cough loudly. They hurriedly entered the room door or the rear door of room 211 and notified their teacher, sister, Mary Helena O'Neill, who was not yet aware of the smoke. O'Neill got up from her desk and began lining up her students to evacuate the building. When she opened the front door of the classroom moments later to enter the hallway, the intensity of the smoke caused O'Neill to deem it too dangerous to attempt escape down the stairs leading to Avers Avenue on the west side of the building. 
She remained inside the classroom with her students to await rescue. The fire continued to strengthen, and several more minutes elapsed before the school's fire alarm rung. About this same time, a window at the foot of the stairwell shattered due to the intense heat, giving the smoldering fire a new oxygen supply. This burst of heat also ignited a 30-inch by 24-foot roll of material described by the fire chief in his report as tarred building paper stored in the area which, along with the petroleum-based waxes on the floor, caused the thick, oily black smoke that was believed responsible for so many of the smoke inhalation deaths in the building. The wooden staircase burst into flames and, acting like a chimney, sent hot gases, fire, and very thick black smoke swirling up the stairwell. At approximately the same time, the school's janitor, James Raymond, saw a red glow through a window while walking by the building. After running to the basement furnace room, he viewed the fire through a door that led into the stairwell. After instructing two boys who were emptying trash buckets in the boiler room to leave the area, Raymond rushed to the rector and asked the housekeeper to call the fire department. He then ran back to the school to begin evacuation via the fire escape. The two boys, meanwhile, returned to their class and warned their lay teacher, which prompted her and another teacher to lead the students out of the classrooms in the annex area of the second floor. The teachers had looked in vain for the school principal before deciding to act on their own to vacate the school. Unknown to them, the principal was in the other wing, covering class that had an absent teacher that day. As they left the building, a teacher pulled the fire alarm, but it did not ring. Several minutes later, after leaving her students in the church, she returned to the school and attempted to activate the alarm again. This time, the alarm rang inside the school, but was not automatically connected to the fire department. By this time, however, the students and teachers in the North Wing classrooms on the second floor were essentially trapped, whether they knew about the fire or not, which is sad. Despite Raymond's visit to the rectory soon after 2.30 p.m. to spread the alert, there was an unexplained delay before the first telephone call from the rectory reached the fire department at about 2.42 p.m. One minute later, a second telephone call was received from Barbara Glawick, the owner of a candy store on the alley along the north wing. Glawick had noticed flames in the northeast stairwell after a passing motorist, Elmer Barkis, entered her store and asked if a public telephone was available to call the fire department. Police initially thought this 61-year-old man was a suspect in the blaze until Barkis voluntarily came forward and explained himself. Glawick used her private telephone in her apartment behind the store to notify authorities. 
The first floor landing was equipped with a heavy wooden door, which effectively blocked the fire and heat from entering the first floor hallways. However, the northeast stairwell landing on the second floor had no fire blocking door. As a result, there was no barrier to prevent the spread of fire, smoke, and heat through the second floor hallways. The western stairwell landing on the second floor had two substandard corridor doors with glass panes propped open, possibly by a teacher at the time of the fire. This caused further draft of air and an additional oxygen supply to feed the flames. Two other doors were chained open when they should have been closed. These doors were at the first and second floor levels leading into the annex. The upper door was quickly closed, but the lower one remained open throughout the fire. As the fire consumed the northeast stairway, a pipe chase running from the basement to the cockloft above the second floor false ceiling had been feeding superheated gases for some minutes on a direct route to the attic. The building's old roof had been times and had become very thick. Consequently, the heat of the fire was not able to burn quickly through the reef up through the roof. My God, what a mistake I'm making tonight. Sorry about that, folks. If it had, it would have opened a hole that would have served to vent much of the smoke and gases. Eventually, as the temperature continued to rise in the enclosed space, the wood of the cocklift itself flashed over. The fire then swept down through the hallway ceiling ventilation grates into the second floor corridor as it flashed through the cock loft above the classrooms. Glass transit windows above the doors of each classroom broke as the heat intensified, allowing superheated gases and thick black smoke in the hallway to enter the classrooms. By the time the students and their teachers in the second floor classrooms realized the danger, and several of the rooms until that moment did not realize the danger, their sole escape route into the hallway was impassable. The second floor of the north wing had become a perfect fire trap. Unfortunately, for 329 children and five teaching nuns, the only remaining means of escape was to jump from the second floor windows to the concrete or crushed rock 25 feet below or to wait for the fire department to arrive and rescue them. Recognizing the trap they were in, some of the nuns encouraged the children to sit at their desk or gather in a semicircle and pray. But smoke, heat, and flames quickly forced them to the windows. One nun, Sister Mary Davidis Devine, ordered her students in room 209 to place books and furniture in front of her classroom doors, and this helped to slow the entry of smoke and flames until rescuers arrived. Of the 55 students in room 209, eight escaped with injuries and two died. Beverly Berta, the last student remaining, remaining in the room, had evidently passed out from smoke inhalation and died when the roof collapsed. Another student, Valerie Toma, died at a hospital on March 10, 1959, as a result of her injuries. Fire department units arrived within four minutes of being called, but then the fire 
had been burning unchecked for possibly as much as 40 minutes. It was now fully out of control. The fire department was then hampered because they had been incorrectly directed to the rectory address around the corner at 3808 West Iowa Street. Valuable minutes were lost, repositioning fire trucks and hose lines once the true location of the fire was determined. Additional firefighting equipment was summoned rapidly as the fire situation was quickly upgraded to five alarm. All available equipment and units. In 1959, the National Fire Protection Association's report on the blaze explained the rapid response of the Chicago Fire Department and its initial priority to rescue pupils rather than merely fight the fires. The south window of the north wing overlooked a small courtyard surrounded by the school on three sides and a 7-foot iron picket fence on the fourth side facing Neighbors Avenue. Because of earlier problems with vandalism on the property, the gate in the fence was routinely kept locked. Firemen could not get ladders to the children at the south windows without first breaking through the gate. They spent two anxious minutes battering the gate with sledgehammers and a ladder before they managed to smash it by backing a fire truck into the gate. The locked gate delayed the rescues of rooms 209 and 211. Firemen began rescuing children from the second floor windows, but nightmare conditions in some of the classrooms had already became unbearable. Children were stumbling, crawling, and fighting their ways to the windows, trying to breathe and escape. Many jumped, fell, or were pushed out of the windows before firemen or ladders could reach them. Children jumped with their hair and clothes. Some died later as a result of the fall, and several more were seriously injured. Many of the smaller children were trapped behind frantic students at the time. Some younger students who managed to secure a spot at the window were then unable to climb over the high windowsills or were pulled back by others frantically trying to scramble out. The temperature continually increased until flashover occurred in the hallway and several of the classrooms at approximately 2.55 p.m. Firemen struggled desperately to pull students and nuns from the windows as these classrooms partially filled with screaming children exploded. Firemen noticed that the white shirts of children in the windows changed color and turned brown. Shortly after the flashover, a wide portion of the school's roof collapsed over rooms 208, 209, and part of 210 and the massive downward rush of heat likely killed several other students and their teachers in rooms 208 and 210 instantly. Room 209 only lost one child, overcome by smoke inhalation before the roofs collapsed. Inside the burning school, a quick-thinking nun rolled petrified children down a stairwell when fear made them freeze. Injured students were rushed to five different hospitals, sometimes in the cars of strangers. Priests from the rectory raced to the scene, grabbing 
frightening students and escorting them through the smoke to the doors. One of the priests, Father Joseph Bean and Sam Turtle Rice, a parent of one of the students, were able to rescue most of the students in room 209 by passing them through a courtyard window on the second floor into the annex. Janitor James Raymond, though badly injured himself from a deep glass gun in his arm, worked in tandem with Father Charles Hunt to open a locked emergency door leading to a fire escape outside room 207. Thanks to their efforts, all students and their teacher, Sister Jordelia Ennis, was rescued from that room. In room 212, located at the opposite end of the hallway from the source of the fire, flames did not actually invade the room, but toxic smoke and heated gases penetrated here as much as in any other second floor room, and room 212 lost just over half of its 55 students and its teacher, Sister Mary Claire Teresa Champagne, to fixation. When the Chicago Fire Department's new snorkel unit arrived, this is one of the first rooms that it began pouring water into, lowering the temperature into the room appreciably, appreciably, and the children who had not been sophisticated were then rescued by the firefighters with ladders. The candy store owner took injured children into her candy store beside the school to escape the winter chill when they awaited medical attention. Neighbors and parents raced inside the school to rescue students on the lower floor or erect ladders outside that proved to be too short for the second floor. 74-year-old Ed Clock suffered a stroke while attempting to assist the children. Residents of houses along Avers Avenue opened their doors to provide sanctuary and warmth for the children. Between the delayed discovery and reporting of the blaze and the misdirection of the response units to the wrong address, the firemen arrived too late. Although they rescued more than 160 children from the inferno, many of the students carried out were already dead, sadly. Some of the bodies were so badly charred that they broke into pieces while being picked up. In room 212, none of the bodies found were burned. The children who perished, as well as the teacher, all died of smoke inhalation. Wow, wow. Very, very sad and tragic case. You know, this is a case that I was really saddened to research and learn about. You never ever think of a building burning that quickly and losing that much life. It's really, really sad. All right, so ladies and gentlemen, join me in my final moment of silence. Let's pay our respects to everyone who died in these awful tragedies. Join me in a moment of silence, please. All right, thank you guys for participating in that moment of silence. All right, that's going to do it for us tonight here on American Tragedy Hour, live on the American Variety Network. I would like to thank you for tuning in 
to this show. I hope you learned a lot about these unusual tragedies. I hope you enjoyed tonight's show, and I do apologize for some of the mistakes that I made on the air. This is the first show that I'm actually videotaping me hosting. It is right here on YouTube and Blog Talk Radio. So I am very excited for that. So, before I go, I want to remind you to like my Facebook page, American Variety Network, to get show news, show updates, and when I'm going to be on the air next. Follow me on Twitter at American Variety Network 1, or at, or at American Network 1. Check out my Tumblr, American Variety Network, and follow me right here on Blog Talk Radio, American Variety Network, blogtalkradio.com forward slash American Network. Don't forget, Monday we've got our live on location broadcast coming up, and Tuesday I have my Christmas 2015 giveaway, where you can win a $10 gift card to Burger King, a $10 gift card to Walmart, a white chocolate-covered Oreo box, and care of C coral up. All you got to do is call in and be one of the first five callers. And all you got to do is discuss your favorite cookie or Christmas memory and the prize that you want. Ladies and gentlemen, have a great weekend, and thank you so much for tuning into this episode of the American Variety Network. Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, and I'll see you next time here on American Tragedy Hour. This episode was brought to you by KROC, the leaders in Life Rock, Arge Alive Live Sand, and in the Freshwater and Saltwater Hobby, and Ryan Serini, a wonderful Chicago-born rapper. Check him out at ryanserini.com. Good night, everyone, and have a great rest of your Friday night, and we'll see you the next time we're on the air.
Hey Western Massachusetts listeners and fans of the American Variety Network mark your calendars Monday December 14, 2015 at 1 p.m. Eastern, 12 noon Central, 11 a.m. Mountain, and 10 a.m. Pacific. The American Variety Network will be broadcasting live from the Eastfield Mall. But this ain't no ordinary Live On Location broadcast. This is a Christmas Toys for Tots Live On Location broadcast. Folks from Western Mass can come donate a brand new toy or cash to Toys for Tots and get a free cookie in return. There will be two Marines present to accept your new toys. This will be broadcast live on the air for everyone not in Western Mass starting at 1 p.m. Eastern and ending at 3 p.m. Eastern. I will interview the Marines and chat about toys and such. I will be live in the Eastfield Mall Food Court broadcasting live and accepting donations for toys with the Marines starting at 1 p.m. ET. The Eastfield Mall is located at 1655 Boston Road, Springfield, Massachusetts 01129 for all those not in Western Mass. You can listen to the live on location broadcast at www.blogtalkradio.com forward slash American Network at 1 p.m. Eastern. Merry Christmas and let's make history. How would you like to win a $10 gift card to Burger King? How about a $10 gift card to Walmart? How would winning some delicious white chocolate-covered Oreos sound? For all of the saltwater reefers out there, would you like to win Caribsea's new product called Coral Up? Well, I got news for you. Live on Tuesday, December 15, 2015 at 9 p.m. Eastern, 8 p.m. Central, 7 p.m. Mountain, and 6 p.m. Pacific Alex Cardinale brings to you the very first annual Christmas 2015 giveaway. One lucky caller will win the $10 gift card to Burger King, one lucky caller will win a gift card to Walmart, two lucky callers will win white chocolate-covered Oreos, and one lucky saltwater reefer will win Carib Sea Coral Up. Five prizes and the chance for five winners. How do you win a prize? Well, you have to call in live on the 2015 Christmas giveaway and discuss what prize you want and why and then state your favorite Christmas cookie. And bang, you will win your prize. First five callers win so don't delay. Tune in live right on Tuesday, December 15, 2015 at 9 p.m. Eastern at www.blogtalkradio.com forward slash American Network. Merry Christmas and Alex Cardinale sponsors this message he loves you the listeners.